Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, yes, some of us do have ties to the university. I'm actually wearing mine. Um, uh, thank you, Dean Mahoney, for the warm welcome. And I want to echo thanks to the Virginia Law and Business Review and its leadership to the John W. Glenn Law and Business Program and to the program's director, my friend and classmate, Andy Vollmer, all of whom have helped to make this conference possible. I want to thank our distinguished speakers as well for the insights and expertise that you will share. The Investment Company Institute and I personally are honored to be part of this dialogue, a dialogue observing the 75th anniversary of the New Deal legislation that served America's fund investors so very well. I enrolled at Mr. Jefferson's Law School 40 years ago this August, in the summer of 1975, eager to begin my professional studies. And I look back on my years here with great satisfaction. Here I found not just an excellent legal education, not just outstanding preparation for the varied career I've pursued, but also lifelong friends and even my dear wife, Joyce. Um, in the words known to generations of Cavaliers, quote, that good old song of Wahua, I'll sing it over and over. Um, so I was especially pleased, personally, to hear that the law school would mark the anniversary of the Investment Company Act and the Investment Advisors Act with this symposium. Now, banner years like this are occasions to celebrate the past, but they also invite us to look forward to the future. In that spirit, and in keeping with the themes of our symposium, I'd like to touch on three topics briefly this morning the origins and strength of our regulatory framework, a critical regulatory debate facing funds today, and the enduring essential tenet for fund regulation as we look forward to the future. First, how has the regulatory framework outlined in the 1940 Acts given rise to the thriving industry we know today? In one of the many letters he wrote after retiring from the White House to Monticello, Thomas Jefferson opined, quote, where a new invention is supported by well-known principles and promises to be useful, it ought to be tried. Now, to be precise, Jefferson was writing about torpedoes, not about mutual funds. But still, his observation has some bearing on the birth of the modern fund industry. The form of fund regulation that emerged in 1940 was certainly a new invention. It was designed to correct gross abuses that had plagued the US fund marketplace before the Great Depression and to restore public confidence in fund investing. It also centered on some well-known principles, strict controls over conflicts of interest, extensive disclosure obligations, and much more. By 1940, the leadership of both the Securities and Exchange Commission and the fund industry of the day had concluded that the legislation promised to be useful and ought to be tried. And so it was that the Senate and the House of Representatives passed the 1940 Acts, both remarkably by unanimous vote, and Franklin Roosevelt signed them into law. That was in August 1940. Shortly thereafter, at the SEC's urging, industry leaders formed a committee to assist in implementing the new legislation, and with that committee, the Investment Company Institute was born. Generations of fund investors are indebted to those who brought all of this about. Now, many things have contributed to the growth and success of registered investment companies in the United States. These include, among others, funds' basic value proposition of diversification of risk and professional management, the pass-through tax treatment that funds receive, the rise of the defined contribution retirement system, a history of remarkable innovation in fund offerings to meet investor needs, and vigorous competition among fund providers, which has driven costs down and quality up. 
Still, on this anniversary, there are other key contributors that deserve even more particular mention. One is the remarkably comprehensive and effective framework of regulation that the 1940 Acts have provided. This framework has surely met the test of time. Indeed, in one of the most fundamental, um, one of the most important developments in modern financial history, it has made possible the emergence of a new, now global form of financial intermediation. Consider this. In 1940, total assets of U.S. registered investment companies were about $1.1 billion. In 75 years, that figure has increased by an amazing 1.6 million percent. Today, there is almost $18 trillion in assets under management at some 800 U.S. fund complexes offering more than 16,000 different funds representing a wealth of investment choices and strategies. Consider, too, that funds today serve some 93 million shareholders, making it possible for Americans in all walks of life to access our capital markets to an extent previously unthinkable. With ease and efficiency and at low cost, these investors are able to deploy their savings not only to achieve their most important long-term um, financial goals, but also to help finance economic activity and growth. Now, another indispensable factor in the growth of funds and fund investing is the remarkable job that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has done in administering the 1940 Acts over all these years. The fabric of the Investment Company Act is unusual. So much of what we take for granted that we regard as just the way the industry works, in fact, depend upon enabling rules and exemptive relief from the SEC. The industry's success is, in a very real sense, the SEC's success. And the Commission can take particular pride, I think, in its efforts over time to protect fund investors. This has served both the investing public and our industry well in preserving confidence that regulated funds are a square deal. A final factor is the unique model of governance that the Investment Company Act provides. That model has evolved over time so that today, an overwhelming majority of fund boards have three-quarters or more of their members who are independent of the fund's advisor. The general oversight of independent directors and the numerous specific roles that they play under the 1940 Act and SEC regulations are critically important to safeguarding the interests of fund shareholders. So that brings me to my second topic, a critical regulatory debate facing funds today. That debate has to do with whether our largest and most successful funds or fund managers will be designated as systemically important financial institutions, or SIFIs, and subjected to bank-like regulation by the Federal Reserve. This is an issue with which ICI has been deeply engaged for a number of years now. Our bottom line is simple. There is absolutely no basis for the proposition that funds pose outsized risks to the financial system. The existing regulation and defining characteristics of regulated stock and bond funds, as well as their historical experience, render designation unnecessary and inappropriate. In fact, America's regulated stock and bond funds proved to be among the most stable parts of the financial system during the 2008 crisis. Moreover, regulating funds like banks, as Dodd-Frank envisions for designated SIFIs, would be extremely harmful. It would penalize investors, distort the fund marketplace, and compromise regulated funds' important role in financing a growing economy. It would also introduce a highly conflicted form of regulation. After all, the Federal Reserve's regulatory priority is protecting banks 
and the banking system. For a fund or fund manager, subject to the Fed's, quote, enhanced prudential supervision, protecting the interests of banks and the banking system will soon have a higher priority than protecting fund shareholders' interests, despite the fiduciary duty that the fund's manager and board owe to the fund's shareholders. And there is every prospect, frankly, that the Fed supervision could reach very deeply indeed into this part of the financial system. Under the methodology proposed most recently by the Financial Stability Board, a group uh, charged by the G20 with coming up uh, with proposing ways of controlling global systemic risk, more than half of the assets in U.S. regulated funds, that's nearly $10 trillion in your money and mine, could come under the Fed's supervision. So could more than half of the assets in defined contribution retirement plans. Now, having been through the process, I do not believe that any member of Congress on either side of the Capitol or either side of the aisle ever anticipated that Dodd-Frank could give the Federal Reserve such an extraordinary expansion of authority. Now, these are issues we're going to return to later in the program. So let me conclude with my third topic, a final thought about the future of our industry. It takes no visionary to detect some of the important trend lines as we look forward. Demographics are shifting. People are living longer, much longer in some cases. Technology is rapidly evolving. We'll soon be wearing smartphones on our wrists. And our markets are global. Um, there are other key influences, I'm sure, that are there, difficult now to predict and will emerge only over time. But all of these trends together, whether evident as we speak here this morning or not, will help shape the needs and expectations of the investors that our industry serves, the markets in which we invest, and the business models and investment products that characterize the industry of tomorrow. Just as important, they will inform the perspective of regulators and government policymakers around the world. Now, we all know change is the order of the universe, and the rapidity of change in the 21st century likely will be astonishing. Undoubtedly, funds and their managers will adapt and evolve. But there is one feature of our culture one characteristic of our enterprise, one hallmark of our regulation that must not change. It connects the work of fund managers and that of fund boards. I refer, of course, to our status as fiduciaries. Whether as advisors to a fund or directors on a fund board, those in the fund industry are nothing if not fiduciaries. We're proud of that fact. We stand up in that light. The concepts underlying the term fiduciary spring from customs and beliefs of the ancient Romans. The pagan goddess Fides was the personification of good faith. Her symbol was the outstretched hand, given as in solemn agreement. Fiducia, a term in Roman law meaning confidence, trust, reliance, assurance, is closely related to the Latin noun fides, signifying belief or faith. It's also related to the adjective fidelis, meaning a person or institution that can be trusted, who is true, steadfast, and faithful. We all know this word from the U.S. Marine Corps motto, semper fidelis, always faithful. Essentially, a fiduciary is one who takes it upon himself to act or advise another, thus inviting the other's confidence and trust. And under our law, the distinguishing obligation of a fiduciary is the duty of undivided loyalty. Now, fulfilling such a duty is no small matter. Especially in an enterprise as large and important as mutual funds, trust and confidence are precious. Indeed, trust and confidence are fundamental. Every dollar of the trillions managed by U.S. registered investment companies today is an expression of our shareholders' trust and confidence in us. 
Investors have their choice among many products to help them meet their most important financial goals. If they wish to, they could turn to banks. The fact that so many choose our funds instead carries with it a profound and sobering obligation on the part of all in our industry to work tirelessly to earn the trust we've been given. So no matter the anniversary we celebrate, nor the level of success we enjoy, this commitment must remain uppermost each and every day. That is the only sure path forward. So if we preserve a framework of sound investor-centered centered regulation, if our successors work hard day by day to maintain that trust and earn that confidence, then I believe the future will be very bright for funds and fund investing, and both will continue to play a key role in the financial system for many years to come. Thank you kindly for the time and attention you've provided. I look forward to a lively discussion during the course of the day. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce a longtime colleague and very good friend, Bob Posen. Um, Bob's uh, abbreviated bio is in the materials that you have, and I will not go through all of his distinguished accomplishments. <clears throat> Suffice it to say that I grew to know Bob uh, almost 25 years ago uh, when he was general counsel at Fidelity. Uh, he rose to be vice chairman of Fidelity Investments and president of Fidelity Management and Research Company. Um, during his five years as president, Fidelity's assets increased from $500 billion to $900 billion. Um, he wasn't done, though, with his mutual fund career. He went on to MFS investment management after the financial crisis and turned around that institution as its executive chairman. Um, between 2004 and 2010, MFS's assets under management doubled. Now, Bob is um, an example in our industry, and there are not that many, of a very noted public intellectual because of his teaching and his extensive writing on a whole variety of issues. He's currently senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, uh, and you see his byline very often in the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. Uh, we're very fortunate to have him here with us. Please make sure you get a copy of his book, Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Posen. Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Uh, Paul did leave out uh, my career as a stand-up comedian, uh, probably because it was very short-lived. Uh, but uh, I just want to make sure I have this right, Dean. Uh, wahoo, wah. Is that the, okay, so that is my greeting to you people from Virginia. Um, most of this conference is going to be on financial stabilities and SIFIs. Um, I've always thought that SIFIs is, sounds like some sort of venereal disease, <laughs> but um, my talk will be more on corporate governance, probably as, uh, you know, sort of a variety part of the show, and uh, I, I defer to all the experts in this room on questions of financial stability. So um, let me uh, say that I'm going to talk for a little while and then have Q&A so that if people have questions or comments, would like to have a little discussion. So here, here is what I've been struggling with. I went to a conference a few weeks ago at which every major asset manager was represented. Vanguard, Fidelity, uh, <clears throat> T. Rowe Price, uh, BlackRock, and they all articulated a terrible concern 
about short-termism. And by that they mean that corporate executives are too focused on quarterly earnings and not focused enough on the long-term. Interestingly enough, there was no consensus on what the long-term meant. But um, there was so much clamor that I went to the internet and found that the criticism of short-termism is like pervasive. The Prince of Wales has now come out against short-termism in business. So you know that this is a public agenda item. And <clears throat> some of the criticisms involve uh, too much trading volume, this sort of thing. I, I think that's actually beside the point because most of the trading volume that's increased has to do with short-term arbitrageurs who couldn't care what the fundamentals are of these companies. They're arbitraging uh, small amounts in very short time. But when it comes down to it, this whole debate revolves around activist hedge funds. And the argument is that they are forcing a short-term agenda to the detriment of the long-term value creation that is sought by the mutual fund industry, the pension funds, and other institutional investors. So that's what I really want to address here. And to me, uh, there is uh, an anomaly, a paradox, something is wrong. Because these activist hedge funds, on average, hold 1% to 2% of a company's stock. And 60 to 70% is held by mutual funds, pension funds, and all these institutional investors. So you would think, how is it that this little guy with 1% or 2% is calling the shots, while 60 or 70%, if they disagree, are not objecting? So we have a really good example of that recently with General Motors. Uh, Harry Wilson, with less than 1% of the stock, comes in, talks to directors and management, and tells them they should increase their buybacks by, I think, 5 or $6 billion. Now, if you are a long-term investor, having General Motors deplete its cash by five or six billion cannot be a good idea. We know it, you know it did go bankrupt and it needs a cash cushion. But this was done in General Motors without even a shareholder vote. And I never heard any institutional investor stand up and object to it. So it, it really is an important question is, if we as institutional investors really believe in long-term value creation and we have these huge portfolios where we can't sell them very quickly, why is it that we are letting these people run the show? So I have six possible answers and six possible solutions just to give us a little symmetry and then we can have an open discussion. So <clears throat> six possible answers. One is we now have something, people argue it, uh, over 30% of mutual fund assets and ETF assets are in index funds, passive management of one form or another. Now, there are big managers of index funds like BlackRock that really spend a lot of time on each activist proposal. But we know that a lot of index funds basically don't even have an analyst who follows a company like General Motors. How would they be able to evaluate whether this activist proposal is good or bad in the long term. They're really not in a good position to do it. Uh, second of all, um, 
think about the cost-benefit of even a Fidelity that owns 1% of a $100 million stock. It's $1 million. Sure, uh, or 5% of a $100 million stock, it's $5 million. It's a lot for that company. But for Fidelity, it's small potatoes. So the cost-benefit for very highly diversified pension funds and mutual funds just doesn't work in terms of their spending a lot of time on these very complex proxy fights. I know when I was president of Fidelity Management, we took on about one a year, and the two things that were the most costly were my time as president, because if it was going to get into the newspapers, I had to be involved. And second of all, somebody always was going to sue you, and that litigation was really going to be very uh, disruptive. <clears throat> A third thing that relates to that is the free rider problem. Even if you're an institution or several institutions that have 9%, whatever money you spend, the benefits are going to go for free to the 91% who don't participate. And there's pretty much no way you can collect that money. <clears throat> Fourth is what I call the outsourcing of proxy voting. Uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine, David Larker, at uh, uh, Stanford has done a very careful study of this. And he shows that there are at least five middle-sized asset managers who vote over 99% with ISS and with Glass-Lewis, another five. And you can say, well, a lot of these are just small potatoes routine, but it's not true. There are at least five complexes that have announced that they always vote with ISI, ISS. And ISS is a perfectly reasonable, smart group of people. Do they have the same long-term perspective as the institutional investors? The answer is maybe, maybe not. But my point is, if institutional investors really want a certain outcome, they need to grab the show. And that's true of the big managers. Fidelity prides itself on evaluating every proxy proposal itself. But as you go down the line, people say, just not worth the time and effort. <clears throat> By contrast, think about the cost benefit. This is point five for a concentrated hedge fund. They may have 50, 80% of their assets in two or three stocks. They also have a performance fee, as we all know, of 20% of realized gains. For them, yes, there's a free rider problem, but the bang for the buck is huge. And that's such a different situation. And sixth, we now have this phenomena of empty voting. It's just starting, but you can be sure that smart people on Wall Street will increase it. And that is, how do you get more votes than you actually own shares? And we've had a big increase in securities lending and those lent shares can be voted. We've had some incredible situations in Canada where people have wound up with huge number of shares relative to ownership. Uh, <clears throat> and through a series of derivatives, some of which are too complicated for me to understand, I'm sure that you can increase your vote relative to ownership. So those are six systemic forces that are underlying this trend where Harry Wilson with less than 1% wins the day, and 60 or 70% who should not agree on the long term say, hey, Harry, I guess it's going. Now, maybe what's happening here is 
that the institutional investors are being disingenuous. Maybe they really like a short-term spike in stock price, and they don't care about the long-term. They just come to these conferences to talk about that. And I'm cynical enough to know that might be true. But I also know people in some of the pension funds and large asset managers, and I don't think they're being disingenuous. So I do think we have to think about, can we do anything about this? So here are my six possible uh, remedies. The first is a sort of general one, that the CFA, who's represented here, the, the SEC, somebody ought to come out with some strong statements that if you're a big owner of a company and there's a big proxy fight, you need to spend the time to evaluate whether or not you should be voting for this or not. You should not be outsourcing this to ISS and you should not let some junior lady or man just make a quick decision. So that's a general principle. Uh, second of all, empty voting. This is a problem that can be solved in most countries by state legislatures. They all have the general principle that you shouldn't divorce ownership from voting. The problem now is it's done in such a complicated and a different way that I don't believe the regulatory system has caught up with this. But it's hard to think about people who buy these votes sometimes even after the record date and just hold the vote. It doesn't seem like a good thing for long-term value creation. Then, number three, um, what we see in Europe now, we see it in Netherlands, we see it in Sweden, we see it in Norway, is investor engagement. We see a lot more efforts, sometimes written into codes of conduct, for directors as well as management to talk to institutions, the institutions who own their stock. Now, I'm on the board of several large publicly, company, publicly traded companies, and I can tell you I will never talk to an investor. It's too dangerous, legally. And if I were to say something different than somebody else. So I used to be very, I would say, ambivalent about the notion of an independent executive chair of a board. But I've now come to see that it may be a really good idea, but for different reasons. That we need somebody on the board who can talk to the institutional shareholders, one person, and in some ways represent the board. And if the institutional investors really feel that there is a long-term value creation problem, they ought to talk about it. I mean, why are we waiting for a hedge fund to tell DuPont that they ought to split in two? I personally don't agree with that argument, but the institutions ought to be weighing in. This is a company that's had a great record and has a good argument about why keeping those two parts of the company are together. And we need a mechanism for the big shareholders to really convey if they believe, as I do, that splitting that company up would be a bad thing. Uh, we need a mechanism for them to convey it. Um, <clears throat> then there are at least two legal problems that are talked about a lot. One is uh, the acting in concert rules. <clears throat> People say they're afraid. They talk to other institutions pretty soon. They have over 5%. The companies or the activists probably won't win the suit, but nobody in the institutional investor can make the cost-benefit ratio work if you've got to pay a law firm a lot of money to, to, to uh, defend this. Now, there is something in the UK called the Investor Forum. Uh, John Kay wrote a, 
the Financial Times columnist wrote a wonderful report on long-term value creation, and this is now already formed to carry that out. And they told me that within the next month, they are going to issue a sort of manual or guidelines about how you can act in investor engagement without triggering the acting in concert rules. So I'm waiting to see what they have to say. But I think it's a, it will be a step in the right direction. Fifth point, which is another legal issue, is regulation FD. Some institutional investors say, in order to evaluate in depth the activist program, we need more information from the company. These are complicated issues. Uh, in order to figure out whether you should increase buybacks, spin off a division, you really ought to look carefully at all the facts. But the companies are afraid to give the big shareholders some material facts because then they'll have to put it on their website. So there is a solution in Reg D, as many of you know, uh, Reg FD, but it may not be palatable to some. If you're willing to sign an agreement that you won't trade, then you can get the information and the company does not have to put it on its website. And you could agree for a certain amount of time. The last thing, uh, proposal I have, which I believe is the most important and goes to the corporate side, is uh, if we want corporate executives to have a long-term view, whatever the hell that means, it surely means more than the next few months. I happen to think it means three to five years. Some people say 10 years. We need to pay them that way. And I'm proud of the fact that when I ran Fidelity's management and at MFS, we paid managers on a three-year performance record. Most companies, executive companies, get paid on a one-year performance record. Now, if you pay people based, you give them big cash bonuses based on what happened in the last year, they are going to act that way. And we as institutional investors have an ability to change that now. We all have advisory votes here in the U.S. In some countries in Europe, they're binding. But if we see companies that focus on last year's result, we can vote against those compensation reports and start to move people in the right direction. So, in short, if institutions are really dissatisfied with a company's performance and feel that it doesn't create long-term value, there are no longer just two choices. It used to be the case you either sold the stock or you opposed management. Now there is a third approach called investor engagement. It's being worked out. And that should happen before there's any proxy fight. Uh, when you, as an institutional investor, think that the company is not making the right long-term strategic moves. And then, if there is a proxy fight, you'll be knowledgeable about the company, and hopefully, everyone in this room and in other institutional investors will say, it's up to us to determine the outcome of that proxy fight and to decide whether this proposal is in the long-term interest of the company. Sometimes these proposals are. Sometimes they're good proposals. I supported the proposal to have Apple start to pay a dividend. You know, if you have $150 billion in cash, maybe you ought to pay a little dividend. But as I said, in many other cases, like DuPont's, I don't support it. Well, these are difficult questions, but what we want to make sure is that Harry Wilson doesn't decide them. 
We want Vanguard, BlackRock, Fidelity, CalPERS. We want those people deciding those issues in whatever time frame they believe is appropriate. Thank you very much.